Chief Justice, may it please the court. I'm Giancarlo Conoparo. I'm Zach Smith. And welcome to SCOTUS 101, where we break down what's happening at the Supreme Court, what the justices are up to, and other things related to our favorite branch of government. Welcome to another episode of SCOTUS 101. Zach, we had a busy week at the court. We sure did. You ready to dive right into things? Yes, indeed. I'll start us off with orders. We had an order. This was actually, uh, what was it, Zach, two weeks ago? End of two weeks ago? About, yeah, that's right. This was uh, Tandon versus Newsom. The Supreme Court here delivered yet another rebuke to California Governor Gavin Newsom by granting an injunction against one of his COVID-19 orders that discriminated against religious practices. The opinion was per curiam, which means we don't know who wrote it, but we do know that the majority comprised Justices Thomas, Alito, Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, and Barrett. The Chief Justice and the court's liberals would have denied injunctive relief. Governor Newsom's order here banned at-home gatherings, including religious gatherings, in Tier 1 counties and limited them to no more than three households in other tiers. Even outdoor gatherings were limited to only three households in all tiers. The order discriminated against religious gatherings because it treated similar secular activities better by allowing larger gatherings. So, for example, hair salons, retail stores, movie theaters, private suites at sporting events, restaurants, etc. all had higher or unlimited caps on attendance. What's more, there was no evidence here that indoor worship services posed a greater transmission risk than any of these other activities. The key to the case is this line, which I'll quote. Government regulations are not neutral and generally applicable, therefore trigger strict scrutiny under the Free Exercise Clause, whenever they treat any comparable secular activity more favorably than religious exercise. The chief would have denied relief, but he didn't give an opinion. Justice Kagan, joined by Justices Breyer and Sotomayor, wrote a dissenting opinion on the ground that the only thing you ought to compare in-home religious gatherings to is in-home non-religious gatherings. Uh, which face the same restrictions. Her opinion strikes me as sort of an arbitrary line-drawing exercise divorced both from the Constitution's protection for religious liberty but also from the science of COVID transmission. The court granted cert in one new case this past week. It was Hemp Hill v. New York. And in that case, the court is being asked to consider whether or under what circumstances a criminal defendant whose argumentation or introduction of evidence at trial, quote, opens the door to the admission of responsive evidence that would otherwise be inadmissible under the rules of evidence also forfeits his right to exclude evidence otherwise inadmissible under the Sixth Amendment's Confrontation Clause. Uh, certainly an interesting issue and one that all of uh, our criminal practitioners uh, will be very interested in. That brings us to oral arguments. First up was Yellen versus Chihalis. This case is one of the first pieces of major litigation to come out of one of the COVID-19 relief bills, and it asks whether the CARES Act's definition of Indian tribe encompasses corporations owned by Alaskan natives. If it does, the respondent here might get billions of dollars in federal aid. If not, then the company is out of luck. So the CARES Act borrows its definition of Indian tribe from a different statute that includes uh, a, a quote, which I'm paraphrasing somewhat, Alaskan Native Village Corporations. So that's what the respondent bases its claim on. It says, I am an Alaskan Native Village Corporation and therefore I fit the definition. 
But the government, 48 states and 17 other Indian tribes, counter by pointing to the last clause of the definition, which seems to require federal recognition of the entity before it qualifies as an Indian tribe. Here, the corporation that brought the case is not a federally recognized Indian tribe. Next up, the court heard arguments in City of San Antonio, Texas v. Hotels.com. Now, GC, I know the issue in this case is going to sound dry, but it's one that appellate lawyers and their clients around the country care deeply about uh, because it's all about the money. (laughs) It involves the issue of whether a district court has discretion to deny or to reduce costs that have been deemed accessible against the losing party on appeal under the federal rules of appellate procedure. The Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, the only court that has considered the issue and reached this result, held that the district courts lack such discretion and must award the costs, uh, one of which is any premiums associated with a bond pending appeal. Hotels.com lost their case in the district court but prevailed on appeal and sought reimbursement for the more than $2 million it spent on appeal bond premiums. The city of San Antonio asked the district court to reduce the amount for which it was liable or to deny Hotels.com recovery for the premiums. The district court said that the city's arguments were, quote, persuasive, but that under Fifth Circuit precedent, it must award the full amount. The acting Solicitor General filed an amicus brief supporting the city of San Antonio, arguing that the district courts should have discretion to reduce or to deny such costs where appropriate. Uh, so that could be the, the thing that tilts the case in favor of the city, uh, but it will certainly be interesting to see how the justices uh, come out in this case. Next up is a very interesting patent case called Minerva Surgical v. Hologic. This case presents the curious question whether an inventor may challenge the validity of a patent on his own invention. So, Zach, you know how in sitcoms sometimes the screen pauses and a voice comes on and says, yeah, that's me. You may be wondering how I ended up here. (laughs) Well, (laughs) happens all the time, GC. (laughs) Well, that is this case. Honestly, the plot is already better than most lawyer TV shows. So we have an inventor, Kasaba Trukai, who created a high-tech medical device, filed a patent application for it, but then assigned the patent rights away, which eventually end up in the hands of a company called Hologic Inc. Trakai then creates his own new company, Minerva Surgical, that competes against Hologic with respect to the very same surgical implement that he created and assigned away. So, not surprisingly, Hologic sues for a patent infringement, and Minerva Surgical takes the surprising, perhaps, position that the patent is actually invalid. While the lower court said that Minerva was precluded from challenging the patent's validity at all, based on the so-called assigner estoppel doctrine. This bars an inventor from challenging the validity of his own invention's patent if he assigned it to somebody else. Now, strange though the situation is, things are actually looking pretty good for Trakai and Minerva at SCOTUS for several reasons. First of all, the text of the Patent Act says that invalidity is a defense in any action. There's no statutory limit on who can challenge a patent's validity. Second, in 1969, the Supreme Court abolished a related doctrine called the Licensee Estoppel Doctrine, which rested on many of the same policy arguments as Assigner Estoppel. Third, the fact that the court took the case suggests that they want to get rid of or tinker with Assigner Estoppel, because if they didn't, they could have just let the lowered court decision stand. 
If the court doesn't want to abolish the doctrine, the government, in an amicus brief, laid out several ways in which it could keep the doctrine but limit it in some ways. Regardless, it's a more interesting case and story than anything Suits ever came up with. <laughs> Let's hope all the lawyers in this case are, are validly admitted to the bar. <laughs> Next up, we have Sanchez v. Mayorkas. This case presents the question whether non-citizens who have been granted temporary protected status are, quote, admitted, that's a statutorily defined term, to the country for the purpose of filing a petition to have their status adjusted to lawful permanent residence. Significantly, someone can obtain temporary protected status even if they first entered the country illegally. And there's the rub in the case. There's a split among the lower courts on whether a grant of temporary protected status conveys admittance after an unlawful entry. It's a thorny question that turns on the interplay of several less than clearly written statutes. Last up, we have two companion cases, United States versus Gary and Greer versus United States, where the court will decide whether a jury verdict in Greer or a guilty plea, Gary, are valid where the defendant's status as a felon is an element in the crime and that fact did not come up at trial or in the case of a guilty plea from the judge before accepting the plea. And that is it for oral arguments. We are now moving into opinions, and we got three this week. First up was Jones versus Mississippi. In a 6-3 decision by Justice Kavanaugh, joined by Roberts, Alito, Gorsuch, Barrett, and Thomas, concurring in the judgment only, the court held that when a minor defendant is sentenced to life without parole for homicide, the sentencing court need not make a separate factual finding of what's called permanent incorrigibility, if the sentencing decision is discretionary and the sentencing court considers the offender's youth. In this case, Rhett Jones was 15 years old when he stabbed his grandfather to death. He was sentenced to life without parole, and during that hearing, the trial court considered his youth. A little legal history is in order. In two previous cases, Miller and Montgomery, the court held that the Eighth Amendment forbids mandatory life without parole sentences for juveniles, and then it made that rule retroactive. So Jones argued here that those two cases stand for the proposition that a juvenile can't be sentenced to life without parole unless the court uh, determines separately that he cannot be rehabilitated. The court disagreed, saying that it was, quote, constitutionally necessary and constitutionally sufficient that the trial court consider the defendant's youth during a discretionary sentencing proceeding. Justice Thomas concurred in the judgment, but he would have overruled Montgomery. That case, he said, made Miller's prohibition on mandatory life without parole retroactive and transformed the rule from a procedural one into a substantive one with no basis in law or the Constitution. In his view, the majority effectively overruled most of Montgomery, but preserved just enough of it to cause more confusion down the line. Justice Sotomayor, joined by Breyer and Kagan, dissented because in her view, Miller and Montgomery implicitly created a requirement that the sentencing court make a separate finding of permanent incorrigibility. She, too, accuses the majority of effectively overruling parts of those cases. Next up, we got an opinion in Carr versus Saw. It was an opinion written by Justice Sotomayor where the court unanimously held that the principles of issue exhaustion did not require Social Security disability claimants to argue at the agency level that the administrative law judges hearing their disability claims were unconstitutionally appointed. And I think once we dig into the facts of the case, it will become clear why. So the petitioners in this case and in Davis v. Saw, which was another case 
case, the court consolidated with this one. The petitioners raised this issue because they were litigating the Social Security Administration's denial of their disability claims in federal court when the Supreme Court issued its decision in Lucia v. SEC, which, as you'll recall, held that administrative law judges within the Securities and Exchange Commission were officers of the United States and had been improperly appointed by lower-level agency staff. Of course, that decision also impacted the Social Security Administration's ALJs who were appointed in a similar manner. But because the petitioners had already exhausted the administrative process before the Lucia decision, they didn't raise a challenge to the constitutionality of the appointment of the ALJs when they were presenting their case before the agency. The 10th and 8th circuits said that they should have done that and that because they did not, they could not now obtain judicial review of the appointment clause claims uh, for the first time in federal court. But the 10th and 8th circuits decisions conflicted with decisions by the 3rd, 4th, and 6th circuits. And of course, uh, the Supreme Court agreed with the 3rd, 4th, and 6th circuits. Now, Justice Thomas uh, wrote a concurrence. He was joined by Justices Gorsuch and Barrett, and he concurred in the judgment and in parts of the majority's opinion. He said that because the Social Security administrative proceedings, quote, bear little resemblance to adversarial litigation, there's no need for an exhaustion rule, and he would have ended the analysis there. Justice Breyer also wrote separately, concurring in the judgment and in parts of the majority's opinion, and he wrote separately because he wanted to make clear that in his view, a claimant ordinarily must raise all relevant issues before the ALJ, but that in this particular case, the Appointments Clause challenges fell within the well-established exceptions for constitutional and feudal claims. Last up, we have AMG Capital Management versus the Federal Trade Commission. In this unanimous opinion by Justice Breyer, the court held that the Federal Trade Commission cannot demand monetary relief, such as restitution, under Section 13B of the Federal Trade Commission Act. That section authorizes the FTC to seek both preliminary and permanent injunctions to prevent future violations of the law. It says nothing, however, about other equitable remedies. Nevertheless, other sections within the Federal Trade Commission Act do. So a circuit split had developed, and today the court resolved it by hewing to the text of Section 13B. There are no monetary remedies in the text, so they're not available. And that finishes up the opinions we have for this week. So next up is this week's interview. We're pleased to be joined today by the Honorable Robert Luck, who currently serves as a judge on the United States Court of Appeals for the 11th Circuit. Prior to joining the 11th Circuit, Judge Luck served as a justice on the Florida Supreme Court, as a judge on Florida's 3rd District Court of Appeal, and as a trial court judge on Florida's 11th Judicial Circuit. Prior to that, he served as an assistant United States attorney in the Southern District of Florida and clerked for the Honorable Ed Carnes on the 11th Circuit. Judge Luck, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Uh, it's an honor and a privilege to be here and to uh, speak with uh, everyone who's listening today. Well, we really appreciate you being here, and we're, I'm, I'm looking forward to our conversation today. Uh, and before we get into some specifics about your career and your experience as a judge, uh, I wanted to ask you just a, a basic background question. What made you want to become a lawyer, Judge? So I think I always had the thought of being a lawyer in the back of my head. Uh, my dad uh, was a truck salesman, and uh, there was always a, 
a, a sort of a back and forth with the economy and and how and sometimes there there be difficulties um and i know for him he always saw the law as a financially stable and an honorable profession and, and he'd always encourage me to go into law school D- don't do what he did you know go to law school so i think i always had in the back of my head there um i, I also uh, i'm i'm not too proud to admit that i was a huge fan of andy griffith's character <laughs> in matlock um when i was a kid my dad and i would always watch matlock on fridays um and i always admired him. Uh, but, but really what, what put me over the edge, uh, in all seriousness, uh, was after I graduated from, from undergrad, uh, I went to work, and I know we probably will talk about this later, uh, for Senator Kyle uh, in the U.S. Senate. Sure. Um, and, and while I was there, it always seemed to me that when we were in a meeting, when we were in a room discussing policy, when we were in a room discussing legislation, uh, that the people who invariably knew the most, who were the most educated, who understood the intersection between policy and law, were the lawyers, were, were those who had gone to law school. And that included the senator who himself was a, a brilliant lawyer, practiced water law uh, before he became, mm. uh, uh, before he went into politics. Um, so I, I think I, I couldn't help but be left with that experience uh, for seeing that those who I think were the most effective public servants uh, were those who knew and understood the law. And, and I think that to me sealed it. I, I, I didn't know at that point what kind of law I wanted to do. I didn't even know if I wanted to be a practicing lawyer, but I sure. knew I wanted to have that knowledge that they do. I wanted to know what they knew. I wanted to think in the same way that they thought. Excellent. Excellent. Now, you mentioned uh, after you graduated going to law school, I understand you're a a double gator. Uh, You attended University of Florida for both your undergraduate and uh, law school. Is that correct? That's correct. I am a proud double gator. (laughs) And I can wholeheartedly endorse that and say, go Gators. Go Gators. And I, I, and I understand while you're at law school at UF, uh, you also served as the editor-in-chief of the Law Review. Would you mind telling us a little bit about your experience serving in that role and your experience in law school more generally? Yeah, absolutely. I, you know, I, I think it, it's fitting to ask about the, the editor-in-chief role or the Law Review role because that really took up so much of the law school experience <laughs> outside of classes. Um, I, know, I know you can relate. Um, right. and, and I can tell you to this day, one of the greatest honors in my professional life is that my colleagues on the review elected me to serve as editor-in-chief. At the time, I don't know the way it is now. It was done by an election of the entire membership. And, um, you know, that really is one of the, the proudest things uh, that I've ever done in my career is uh, that folks thought that and trusted me enough to be able uh, to do the job or think that I could do the job. Um, I, I really think there were three things that I took away from that experience and that I think were really critical in my, my entire role in law school or my entire uh, time in law school. And, and the first is my, the friendships. The, the people that I am closest with to this day were those that I those friendships that I forged on Law Review. Mm. And, and I don't know if it's all those hours you put into the editing or researching process. I'm not sure if it's all the Nerf basketball games that <laughs> we do in the Law Review office. And I know you're laughing because I know you played those same games. Absolutely. Um, you know, I'm not sure if it's the shared interests or career goals, but the, those uh, those friendships that were forged in the Law Review office have really stayed with me the most. And those folks have, have really been with me throughout my career and throughout, um, you know, my time and as a as a lawyer. Um, and I, I really value those, those value and treasure those friendships. I think the second thing that I took away is probably my closest relationship with any uh, faculty member um, was my relationship with the faculty advisor on law review, Professor Dennis Calfee. Um, right. You know, uh, I, I'm blessed to have many mentors uh, throughout my career, and, and we may talk about some of them, but uh, Professor Calfee is near the top. Um, he was he gave me my first wedding gift um, <laughs> prior to my marriage. He was there at the baby naming for 
for my daughter's uh, baby naming ceremony. Uh, he was at my first investiture. Um, you know, to this day, I still seek him out for guidance and help. And, and we're talking about 20 years after I first met him. Um, right. And I know many, many others in the review have the same exact experience I do with Professor Calfi. What, what's amazing with him is you think you have this, this uh, really deep and, and, and individual relationship with him, and you do, except that he has that with dozens and dozens <laughs> of students over the right. course of, of decades at the law school, which is, you know, shows what a great man he is. And really the third thing I took away from the EIC uh, position um, and the law review experience was, was – and something that stayed with me is it, it, I think in many ways it was my first experience with true leadership. Uh, you know, the EIC's job is a difficult one. You're really bringing together a, a lot of smart, hardworking, and strong-willed law students together for the common <laughs> right. goal of putting together the best journal you can do. And, and that's not an easy thing, but it's an important thing. And I think the, the journal is as strong as the EIC's ability to bring those folks together. The EIC is bridging the divide amongst those personalities, amongst people's strengths, and really is working with all sorts of people at the law school. The professional staff that were there, including Lisa, who's still the the, the staff editor, uh, right. the authors, the editors, uh, the faculty advisor, the administration. Um, I remember we had uh, tons of issues with the administration while I was there. Um, and again, the, <laughs> the goal in doing all this is to have a top flight academic journal. And, and I'm not sure I always succeeded in doing all of those things you need to do as an EIC, but I can tell you that I was a better person for having tried and for having worked with the folks on the review. And I think that's why that experience has, has stuck with me um, as long as it has. Excellent, excellent. And I wholeheartedly uh, endorse your, your point about Professor Dennis Calfee. He's a phenomenal gentleman and a great mentor and, and a tremendous resource uh, to everyone at the law school as well. He is. Uh, now, after law school, you clerk for Judge Ed Carnes on the 11th Circuit, and I understand you clerk for him twice. Uh, what was it like to clerk for him? Uh, do you have any special memories? And are there any special traditions uh, that Judge Carnes uh, had with his law clerks? Sure. Um, so uh, just a little background. So I, I did a traditional clerkship, like a lot of folks, uh, after law school, uh, a one-year term clerkship with Judge Carnes. Uh, I was very blessed uh, that he hired me and uh, to get that. And after my one year was done, I went to work at a law firm in Miami. And while I was working at the law firm, uh, Judge Carnes had invited me to come back as uh, on, on a more permanent or career basis. Um, nothing's permanent, he would tell you, but um, <laughs> at least on a career basis or a, a non-term basis. Sure. And the reason was that by then, I think he was in or, or approaching his 15th year on the bench. And I think like a lot of judges, he wanted at least one person who was a more stable presence uh, in chambers. You know, there, there are four uh, law clerks and a staff attorney um, who, who would come in every term and you'd have five people every year that you'd have to train up um, to do the job and to do it how you wanted them to do it. And just as they're getting good is when they're leaving. So I, I think Judge Carnes wanted someone to help bridge that Divide to, to help train those who were coming in um, and to have a more uh, stable presence. And he's had that. Um, he, I was the first one to do that. And uh, the person who replaced me, Kristen, has actually still been with him uh, for a long time. So uh, th that's why I had the two clerkships. Um, what was it like to clerk for him? It's like uh, it's the most intimidating experience I, I, that I could <laughs> I could tell any young law student to do because it's like working for the smartest, most brilliant, best writer that you could possibly imagine in the law. Um, and and you're never, ever going to reach that. So you, there's lots of things you take away from the experience. I think you were better from the experience, but you also come depressed as can be that you will never, <laughs> ever be that good. Um, and that, that's sort of what I've taken away from it. But there are three things in particular that, that I took away from the experience. The first is 
the intense commitment to public service that Judge Carnes had. I mean, every waking day of of his of his career from the time he was in law school, even um, to this day has been spent in service to his state and to his country. Um, and for him, I, I, he, I don't think he would articulate it this way, but, but he, generationally it fits. He really internalized that, that, that directive by president Kennedy in his inaugural to ask what you can do for your country. And, and that's truly what judge Carnes sees it is. What can I do um, to, to help serve the public in any way that I can? And I think seeing that up close, I, I always had a little of that in me, but I think seeing that in, up close and that you can make a career and an honorable one at doing that really sparked me that, that I could go in that path. Um, I think the second thing is, the professionalism that Judge Carnes took to the job every single day. Um, he's a serious person, and he treated the workplace as a serious place to work because to him, it, it could not be more serious the cases they had before uh, before the court. You know, each case that, that the court has, ha- however it deals with it, however minor it might appear to the court, is the most important case in the lives of the litigants in front of them. And a- as a litigant himself, as someone who litigated for 20, oh, 20 plus years, he never forgot how important those cases were to the litigants and to the parties. A- and he treated those cases, every case that was in front of him, like it was the most important one. A- and and that sort of permeated everything, that how, how he treated his staff, how he treated the law clerks, how he treated his judicial administrator, how he treated the other judges, the seriousness with which he would come to work, uh, the way he would dress, the hours that he would put in, all of it permeated that, that sense of professionalism. And, and I, I have really tried to model that as best as I could throughout my career. And I think the last thing that I took away from it, um, from that experience and what I got from it, is his work ethic, is Judge Carnes' work ethic. You know, when I clerked for him, he was between uh, 12 and 15 years on the bench. And, and he was really good. I mean, he had a great reputation then. And you would think at that point in your life, you're, you're in your 50s, you are sort of at the pinnacle of your <laughs> career, that you would sort of step back a little bit or slow down a little bit, uh, but, but not even a little bit when it came to him. And honestly, to this day, it's not. It's just not in his nature. Um, for him, it, it went... It, it, the, the work ethic sort of flowed from the two other things, from his commitment to service and his professionalism. He was the first one in in the morning. I don't think I ever saw him leave before the sun went down. Um, you know, he rarely ever took vacation. And when he did, um, he always took work with him. He worked every single weekend that I ever saw. Um, and because for him, doing it well required putting in the hours. It's the only way to get good um, at doing your job and, and to fulfill your commitment to service. Um, and so, uh I, I too have tried. I, I don't know that I can meet those those thresholds or I can meet uh, that standard, <laughs> but I too have tried throughout my career to really uh, uh, put in the time and and only by putting in the time to get better uh, at my job. In terms of special memories, I mean, there there are many. I clerked for him for three years, but I think the ones that stick with me the most, the ones that I think about the most, and that I, I I've and and that I I would talk to him or reminisce about are are those few times where you would get on a bench memo um, uh, or get a memo from him stating good job or you made a really good point there. Mm. Um, I think there there was nothing better than than for for someone that that I admired and thought of as perhaps the most brilliant legal mind of his generation to think that I had written something that convinced him and that he thought was a good point um, in service of his job. Um, And I, I, you know, to me, those, those few moments where I hit that, that, that threshold where I hit that, that top where he thought it was a good point. I mean, really stick with me. And I think, you know, made me go on. It's, it's kind of like playing golf, you know, where you, you're awful (laughs) at it and you, you, you know, you, you, you're, you're, 
you know, swinging away and chopping away and slicing everything in the woods. And then you hit that one beautiful shot and that sort of keeps you uh, playing on. It's, it's sort of like that. And it's the thought that, you know, I could do that. I could reach that threshold that maybe go on that. Maybe I could do this. Maybe I can make a career out of this. Um, in terms of special traditions, you know, again, it, it was a, a serious place to work. So I, I don't know that we had so many special traditions, but two that stood out to me, um, and and I think we'll talk about later when we talk about things that I do, um, were were the Thanksgiving lunch. Judge Carnes would have a potluck Thanksgiving lunch every year. Um, I think Thanksgiving was a was a special holiday to him, um, and it has always been to me. And and I, I think the thought of getting together your chambers as a family, um, having that sort of good time together, and then Judge Carnes would always release us uh, a little early to go uh, travel if we had to travel or to uh, spend time with our families. Those those were uh, really great memories um, uh, from those Thanksgiving lunches. And then, um, you know, I I think he I, I think a manifestation of how he cared about his staff and he cared about his clerks was, was sort of keeping its history. And, and it was important to him that every year that he took a photograph of each clerk and those photographs are f- sort of framed together uh, as a class. So there are, you know, he's been on the bench now, I think 27 years, there are 27 separate frames in his chambers <laughs> with every clerk class, um, you know, with a picture of that clerk uh, stating, you know, when they clerked, where they went to undergrad, where they went to law school. And, you know, you can't help when you're walking in that chambers, looking at the past classes and thinking about some of the great minds that have worked there um, and how they have helped, um, you know, they've helped Judge Carnes do the the work that he did. And uh, to be a part of that is a real special thing. Sure. Now, you mentioned Judge Carnes writing. Uh, Ross Guberman uh, wrote a book, Point Taken, How to Write Like the World's Best Judges. And he listed Judge Carnes as one of the better opinion writers that currently sits on the federal bench. Uh, so what did you learn from Judge Carnes in terms of your writing? Or do you have any writing tips or lessons uh, from Judge Carnes that you could uh, pass on to all of us? Now, I'm biased. I will uh, fully admit my (laughs) bias, but I think Judge Carnes is one of the best, if not the best, appellate opinion writers in the country. I mentioned this before, but it's almost depressing working for him because he's so good that you know you'll never reach that (laughs) pinnacle, no matter how hard you try. It's like like a classical musician uh, who listens to Beethoven or Mozart. You know you're never going to be as good as Beethoven and Mozart, so you almost wonder, why am I trying? But... Nevertheless, you try, um, and, and I have tried throughout my life. Um, you know, he gives. I've heard him give hour, hour and a half presentations. I know he's even taught at the the Duke LLM program about uh, judicial writing. So uh, there's a ton of tips that he has over the years and the things that he uses. But I, I think two things stand out, and and his lessons can be condensed into these two things. I think the first thing is that opinion writing is the view that opinion writing is how we communicate our decisions to litigants, lawyers, and the general public, and that we enhance our legitimacy uh, when we write clearly and in a way that as many people as possible can understand what we are saying and why we are ruling the way that we are ruling. You know, for, for him, I think the broader the audience that can understand what we are writing, the more that they will understand what we're doing and why we were doing it, and that'll bring legitimacy to the court. So I think that that, that sort of principle or thought stems from the fact that we should write in a way that's accessible to as many people as possible. And, and you know, what, what does that mean? That means sweeping away a lot of the conventions that lawyers use, a lot of things that you're taught in law school. Um, you know, there's no reason why why writing should have to be stilted in the way that we, we, that lawyers write and why it should be any different than the way other writing is. And I think that's the, that's the second principle that, that I took away from him and that good writing is good writing. 
it, it doesn't matter if you're writing a novel, if you're writing a speech, if you're writing an academic journal, or if you're writing a judicial opinion. The same tools that we use for good writing, for rhetoric, and that we use for, for persuasive writing are the same things that we would use for opinion writing. And I think you see that in Judge Carnes's writing. He uses those same literary tools. He uses allusion. He uses metaphor. He uses simile. He uses alliteration. Those are the same things that make writing beautiful, help to make, I think, opinion writing, if not beautiful, at least more accessible and understandable. Um, and I, I, I've tried to do that. It's an impossible task to reach um, someone who really is at the top of their craft. <laughs> but I think we can all benefit from using some of those same tools or at least understanding that what we are doing as writers is not writing for the, the legal intelligentsia or, or the, you know, the, the, the nine great minds in Washington, D.C., but instead uh, are writing for everyone to read it so that everyone can understand it. I watched last night the, the first part of uh, the PBS documentary on Ernest Hemingway, and, and it talked about his, his sort of metamorphosis or his thought that, that the novel should sweep away all of these conventions to be stripped down to its bare minimum and accessible to everyone. And it compared him to his contemporaries, which are James Joyce. If, everyone's tr- if anyone's tried to read Ulysses, you know how impossible <laughs> it is to read James Joyce. A hundred percent. And even Faulkner, who is everybody loved and had, and, and I think did an amazing thing by, by adopting the voice of, of a part of the country that didn't have a voice. It, it's very difficult to read. It's very dense. Whereas you know, you say what you want about Hemingway. There's lots of critiques you can have about it, but it's easy to understand. Anybody can pick it up and read it. And I think that's what he was going for. And I think that is often what Judge Carnes is going for. And then one more question about Judge Carnes. Having clerked for him, uh, what's it like to now serve as a colleague with him on the 11th Circuit? You know, it's like getting to sit next to your hero uh, as an equal. Um, you know, it's like it's like admiring Superman your whole life and then getting to have his superpowers uh, that he has, although not being as good as Superman, but uh, getting to have that. You never think it's going to happen. Um, and it, it, it's truly an amazing thing. It's one of the, the greatest honors of getting to serve is getting to serve with him. Uh, we, we've now gotten to sit on some panels together, um, and it's wonderful to see how his mind works on that side of it. You know, I, I got to see a lot working with him for three years, but getting to be in the room with him as as we deliberate and as we work through the cases and getting to see how he reasons uh, is uh, truly a special thing. Um, and, and I think the, the, the greatest thing is how, how, on, how generous he's been in the same way that we talked about with Professor Calfee, really how generous Judge Carnes has been um, to, to all of his law clerks, but uh, to me in particular, um, in terms of helping me uh, throughout my career, but also helping me adjust to the court, uh, helping me deal with the sort of the everyday issues that come up for any new judge on any new court. Uh, he's so... I, I, you know, it, it's almost two or three times a week where I'll call him and have a, a stupid or silly question that I wouldn't want to ask any other colleague because it's stupid or silly. <laughs> and yet he will answer it, walk me through the problem, help direct me to the right person and always has the right answer. Um, and to have that is a, a really special thing. Great. Uh, if it's OK, I want to skip ahead and talk a little bit about your time as an assistant U.S. attorney in Miami. I understand you were assigned to a couple of different sections there, the appeals, the major crime section, and the economic crime section. Uh, Are there any special memories or any specific uh, cases you remember from your time there? And how do you think uh, your experience as an AUSA uh, helped prepare you for the bench? So, um, you know, you you were— 
we work on a ton of cases when you're at the U.S. Attorney's Office. I, I, I know you that, that you know that. And every case is special and important to you in some way. It's like your children. You don't want to pick your favorites. But um, <laughs> I, I think the ones that hit me the hardest or have stayed with me the most were, were victim cases. Um, you know, a mm. lot of cases at the U.S. Attorney's Office are not what I'll call traditional victim cases. Right. You know, they could be a large scale drug case or um, a case dealing with illegal possession of firearms or even some uh, white collar work that, um, you know, healthcare fraud where the victim is the government. It isn't a direct person. But I think those cases where where there was a, a true victim, you know, what we'd understand normally as a victim, where uh, somebody truly suffered as a result of somebody's crime um, really stick with you. Uh, I spent a lot of my time in the economic crimes division, probably the longest uh, of my stint uh, at the U.S. Attorney's Office. And I handled a lot of cases where investors got ripped off by fraudsters um, through a, a fraud scheme. And, you know, it's one thing if you're dealing with, you know, the Madoff types where you're dealing with very rich people who, you know, while certainly devastated by losing a lot of money, are, are they're still very wealthy. And, right. you know, it's not otherwise hit. It's another thing entirely when someone who is ripped off when an investor is ripped off and their entire life savings are taken away where they right. lose their home where they can't pay for their cancer treatment. And, and I, I had one case that, that implicated that it, it was an accountant um, who, um, uh, who had used his contacts, you know, sort of a, a regular Miami accountant who had used his contacts with a lot of working class folks uh, to tell them that he could, uh, he had an investment side business and could invest their money for them. And these people had been uh, his accounting clients for 20 years. They all trusted him. You know, he was friends with many of them. And so they, they gave their life savings to them, 20000 30000 $40,000, the amount that it was in their IRA, you know, it, the, whatever they got on a line of credit for their home, you know, under the, the thought that they trusted this guy. And, you know, the Ponzi works like Ponzi's work. You know, he's paying uh, new money with old money with new money, right. new money with old money. And then eventually it stops. The, the music stops. And um, folks who uh, had, had stayed with him the longest and who, you know, kept giving money to him, you know, lost the biggest. And there was just some horrible stories as a result. Uh, one particular family, they had their son was murdered uh, at, at a middle school. Uh, in, mm. in South Florida, and they had gotten a settlement from um, from the county as a result, and and that was really the only money these people had was the settlement money, and and, and the accountant knew that he was friends with these people, and he stole the settlement money from uh. their son's murder. Um, there was another woman who had worked as a secretary for for close to twenty years. You know, was was close. He knew everything about the family. Her her husband was suffering, was dying from cancer. He had stage four cancer. I can't remember if it was pancreatic or something, lung cancer, something that that he was invariably going to die from. He knew that. He told this woman that he would invest the money so that you know she would have more of a nest egg after her husband passed away. And he just stole all uh, of it. And she was left with nothing. Had lost terrible. her home as a result. I mean, just just horrific. Uh, the case was, was actually featured on American Greed, uh, that, that show on CNBC. Um, I don't know if you've seen it before. That, that did, sort of talks did you about make a Did you make a cameo on American I, I did, Greed, I Judge? did. The, the, the U.S. Attorney's <laughs> Office in Miami has, for whatever reason, a, a good relationship with that show. I think because there's no lack of fraud at the, uh, in sure. Miami, um, no lack of fraud scheme. <laughs> so they, they've uh, they featured a number of Miami cases over the years. And um, you know I did get interviewed for that case. But that, that one in particular has stuck with me. Sure. I think there are two things that I've taken away from the experience at being at the U.S. Attorney's Office on the bench. I think the first is having to try cases. So I, I tried 19 jury trials when I was there, which isn't a ton, but I think it's at least enough to 
give me a, a firm understanding of the mechanics of the trial, uh, certainly how to use the evidence code and, and what it means for everyday objections, and really what trial lawyers are going through day to day when you're in a trial with dealing with witnesses, with preparing, right. with getting everything together, and sort of the demands on a trial lawyer. I, I think those are things that are really important for the judge to understand when, when the judge makes demands of the trial lawyer on what can and can't be done to understand how all of that mechanics works about putting together a trial, both from the, the prosecution and the defense side. And, and I think, just frankly, it made me ready to be able to try cases. I mean, uh, as a trial judge in Miami, when, when, I, when I first was appointed to the bench, you know, it's an active trial docket. Um, my first week, I had a criminal jury trial, my very first week. Wow. When I was assigned to the civil division, <laughs> my first day. Uh, folks showed up and said, judge, the last judge said we were ready for trial today. We're ready for trial. So you have to be ready to call a jury down and go to trial. Um, and, I, and I felt comfortable doing that, having tried cases. Um, I think the second is, you know, a federal prosecutor has to make some of the most important and impactful decisions in the lives uh, of others. You know, something as as routine at the U.S. Attorney's Office as sending out a, a grand jury subpoena on behalf of the grand jury. You know, federal prosecutors do that all the time and send out subpoenas all over the place. But but think about the recipient of that subpoena. You know, in many ways, especially if that person becomes a, a subject or target of the grand jury investigation, that could upend their entire lives. And so sending that out, you know, has profound effects. And multiply that by the dozens and dozens of decisions that a federal prosecutor has to make in the course of investigating a case or even deciding whether a case should be investigated. I think getting to make those decisions, those really, I think, life-changing or life-affecting decisions helped me a lot with some of the very difficult decisions that had to be made um, as, a, uh, as a judge. Again, right away, I, I remember it to this day, you know, your first week, you have a, a significant uh, detention hearing where you have to decide, you know, arguments are made by the prosecutor that uh, a defendant should be detained, pre detained pre-trial. The defense attorney makes an argument that the defendant shouldn't be detained and why and what conditions of honor are appropriate. And then everything is quiet. Quiet, and the parties and the judges uh, or the lawyers are looking to the judge or looking to me to decide. Um, and are you are going to decide whether that person's liberty is going to be taken away in a very real way prior to a finding of, of guilt beyond a reasonable doubt? And, and the law calls for it under certain circumstances, but ultimately it rests on the judge to decide that. And I, I think, you know... I think you can get fatigue in, in, in judging in all the decisions you have to make. I think it can be uh, it can cause a lot of paralysis in some people with some of the significant decisions. And I think having had the experience of making some of those significant decisions or making those sorts of recommendations helped me when I took the bench. I have one final question for you, Judge, and it's a question we ask all of our guests here on SCOTUS 101. If you could have a conversation with any Supreme Court justice, living or dead, who would it be and what would you talk about? I'm sure this is trite. Um, I'm sure that this has been said by a million people. I, I wish I had listened to every single one of these podcasts, but I haven't. I've only listened to a few. Um, so I apologize if it's the same answer that everyone else has given. <laughs> but for me, if I had to pick one, and it's almost impossible to pick because um, there, there's a lot of people I would love to, to have conversations with, um, it is Chief Justice John Marshall. Um, and, and what I'd want to know is how he was able to do it. Um, if you think back to what the country was like and what our judiciary was like and, and what life for him was like back then, it's almost under impossible circumstances that he wrote some of the most lasting 
uh, opinions interpreting our Constitution that anyone could write. And he didn't just write one. He wrote dozens upon dozens upon dozens of opinions that to this day uh, have an influence in how we do our jobs and how we view and interpret our Constitution. I, I mean, just think about the circumstances that he was in. There was almost no federal judiciary back then. There were certainly no infrastructure set up. There wasn't even a court uh, when, when when this all first came about. Eventually, they gave him some room at the, the basement of Congress, but there, there really was no court. He didn't always get a, a full court to come. They had a ride circuit, each of the justices. So he spent the vast majority of his time going between Virginia uh, and North Carolina hearing trial court cases, everyday sort of cases that, that our state and federal judiciary hear all the time. Um, and that's what he spent most of his time doing. And in between sitting one month, and they only met for about one month or 40 days uh, was the term of the Supreme Court, and all of their work had to get done or else it got rolled over to the next time. So he wrote those opinions. He heard oral argument and wrote the, those great opinions that we all know in, in, in the course of just days, uh, which is almost incredible to think <laughs> about. Um, in, a, in addition to doing all of that, in addition to writing Circuit, he also wrote a five-volume biography on Washington, which to this day is still one of the premier uh, biographies of Washington. He he served uh, with um, and was contemporaneous with presidents who absolutely hated him and the federal judiciary and wanted to eliminate it or did everything they could to. Um, and, and to be under these circumstances and yet to be among the most brilliant legal minds um, probably to this day that our country has ever produced uh, is just, I just want to be able to know how he was able to do it. Um, and I, I, I've read biographies. I've tried to understand myself. I'm sure there, he would be modest about it if you asked him. But um, I, I'm just fascinated that that a, a great person like that rose to the occasion and helped establish uh, what we uh, all follow, what you have a podcast about to this day. Um, so that would be my excellent. person. Well, excellent. Well, Judge Luck, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. I've really enjoyed getting a chance to, to talk with you, and I'm sure our listeners have enjoyed getting to, to hear from you as well. So thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much. Thank you to your listeners, and thank you for uh, all the folks who helped put this together. Of course. Take care. All right, Zach, are you ready for some trivia? No, but hit me with it anyway. <laughs> your confidence, Zach, is inspiring. All right. So, you know, there have been and continues to be quite a lot of angst from left-leaning pundits and court watchers about Justice Breyer. They have been feverishly urging him to retire right now so that Biden can appoint a younger replacement. Breyer is 82 years old, and he shows no sign of fatigue or mental decline. Meanwhile, a pundit, whose name I now forget, made the claim that conservative justices retire strategically, liberals do not. That struck me as factually challenged. So I delved into some strategic retirement history and put together some trivia for you. <laughs> All right, let's hear it. All right. So question number one. Conservative can be a difficult label to attach to a justice. So I've gone for something more objective. That is nomination by a Republican president. So in the last 30 years, which justices nominated by a Republican president resigned during a Republican administration? Well, I'd just like to say, you know, I definitely understand with your uh, goal of an objective measure, but I can think of a few notable examples where Republican justice <laughs> does not appointed justice does not equate to a uh, conservative <laughs> justice. That's, uh, that's, well, you're skipping ahead to question three. Hold that. Thought. All right. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, all right. So the question is, which Republican appointed justice justices also retired under Republican presidents. Is that Correct. right? 
Within the last 30 years? Within the last 30 years. Well, there's Anthony Kennedy, obviously, appointed by Reagan, uh, retired under Trump. Um, Sandra Day O'Connor, appointed by Reagan, retired under uh, George W. Bush. And I can't think of a third one or, or any other ones right now. Sorry, did you tell me there were three, GC? <laughs> I, I, I did not, but your instinct is good. There were three. The third okay. is William Brennan. The reason you might not have thought of William Brennan is because he's a, uh, a lion of the liberal court. So it wouldn't probably strike you as a Republican appointee, but he was. Well, Eisenhower, right? That's right. That's right. It's hard to call these retirements strategic, however. Uh, Justice O'Connor certainly wasn't. She retired to spend time with and care for her husband, who had Alzheimer's. Mm. Brennan, of course, was very progressive and retired for health reasons, definitely not to give a Republican another appointment. Only Kennedy uh, is the claim plausible, but it's hard to call him a conservative. I think strategic centrist is a better descriptor. Well done, though. Two out of three. Question number two. Same question, but with respect to Democratic appointees. Appointed by Democrat, retired under Democrat. Oh, you are hitting me with the, the tough questions. Within the past 30 years? Is that Correct. still the, the question? I don't know, GC. You'll have to, uh, you'll have to educate me a little bit today. Uh, there's only one. That's Justice Byron White. Appointed by Kennedy, retired under Clinton. Oh, it's interesting. Yeah, hard to call that a strategic retirement either, though. White is another justice who tends to defy partisan labels, but his opposition to substantive due process, a theory upon which so many progressive agenda items were delivered by the court, means that he might be said to have leaned conservative. Anyway, uh, so, so far the theory is not working well. Question number three. Many justices in the last three decades were party switchers. That is, they retired during the tenure of a president from the opposite party that nominated them. Can you name three? Oh, let me think here for a minute. Uh, Got to get the uh, got to get the old mental juices flowing uh, <laughs> a little bit. All right. So David Souter was one. Correct. Uh, Appointed by H.W. Bush, retired under Obama. Uh, I think John Paul Stevens was probably another. Uh, appointed by Ford, retired under Obama again. Is that right? That's correct. All right. So I need one more, right? Right. Well, I think he may just make it under the wire for the past 30 years. Uh, but would Thurgood Marshall be another one? Because I believe he retired uh, when, again, when President H.W. Bush uh, was in office. So I'll go with Thurgood Marshall as my, my third choice. That is correct. Uh, and the fourth one was Harry Blackman, nominated mm. by Nixon and uh, replaced with Stephen Breyer by uh, Clinton. Mm. So, yeah, notice all three or rather all four party switchers were liberals who, with one exception, Thurgood Marshall, retired during democratic administrations so i think we can put the pundits theory to rest it certainly seems to be on uh, shaky ground <laughs> right now <laughs> and that's all we have for today so thank you so much to everyone for listening to scotus 101 please be sure to subscribe on spotify apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen and as always we'd appreciate if you left us a five-star rating you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at SCOTUS101 and email us at SCOTUS101 at heritage.org with your questions, comments, or ideas for future shows.
case is submitted. You've been listening to SCOTUS 101, brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. Executive produced by Giancarlo Canaparo and Zach Smith. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and John Pop. For more information, visit heritage.org.